I hope that the screenplay we wrote opened the door to the notion that it was a guy who didn't want to give up living his life the way he wanted to live it, that there was a statement about independence, but there was also a statement about penance and redemption. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is a direct extension of my episode exploring and unpacking the best travel movies of all time. One surprise for me when I was trying to figure out which travel movies I liked best was the fact that I really responded to the straight story. And the straight story is, as travel movies go, a bit unorthodox. Rose, darling, I'm going to go back on the road. And I've got to make this trip on my own. I've got to go see Lyle. I know you understand. Alvin, you're going to get blown off the right off the road. That's what I'm afraid. Indeed, the straight story isn't about a young protagonist setting off to see the world to discover something new. It's about a 73-year-old man riding a lawnmower across the rural Midwest to make peace with his brother. It was directed by David Lynch, who's best known for bizarre and haunting movies like Blue Velvet and Lost Highway and the TV show Twin Peaks. Yet The Straight Story is an understated and humble movie that captured something true about a certain corner of the American Midwest. After talking about The Straight Story in the last episode, I realized that one of its screenwriters, a man named John Roach, was never a Hollywood guy. John is from the Midwest, from Wisconsin, and he still lives there, where he has, over the years, worked as a writer, video producer, and magazine columnist. I tracked him down with some questions about The Straight Story, and I'm glad I did, since our conversation plays out like a lost DVD commentary track that offers a perspective on the movie that even David Lynch, its director, couldn't provide. The movie is based on a true story, and John researched and co-wrote it with Mary Sweeney, a longtime David Lynch collaborator. And together they made a movie that delves into the life of an older protagonist, as well as the subtle beauty of the Midwest, without seeming sentimental or maudlin in their storytelling. John and I talk about how creative license with what happened in real life deepened the truths at the heart of the story, how the straight story is a pilgrimage movie of sorts, and even how deer rutting season affected how the movie was made. Our conversation has a lot of love for the Midwest, and there are no real spoilers here since the straight story is written in such a way that there's not much to spoil. This episode is brought to you by my longtime partner, Airtrex, which admittedly plans the kind of travel you don't see in the straight story. Airtrex can't really help you plan lawnmower journeys across Iowa, but it does offer a great set of online tools and customer support for planning around the world and multi-stop international flight itineraries for vagabonding trips. To learn more about how to plan your own trip, just go to Airtrex.com. All right, here's John Roach and I talking about how the straight story got made and what makes it an extraordinary travel movie. Let's start by talking about the movie itself. We can dig into your involvement with it, which I'm really curious about. But this is not a very normal movie. I mean, it's not really a genre movie. It's it's sort of a travel movie, and I included it in a roundup of travel movies earlier. But it's not your typical travel movie, in part because it's, it has a 73-year-old protagonist. And then it's also not a not a very normal David Lynch movie either. It's, it's a G-rated movie uh, that came out 20 years ago. Right. So how would you describe this movie to someone? Well, um, I guess the first thing I would say is that it's based on a true story. And um, there was actually, uh, because of that, um, my co-writer Mary Sweeney and myself um, 
we did, we traveled the route that Alvin Strait traveled um, on his lawnmower to visit his brother. Uh, the trip took over six weeks. And we, we were able to, this was right at the advent of the uh, web becoming a more robust tool. We were able to pull up all sorts of articles, both national articles, um, the Washington Post, I know, did a piece on him. The Network News did a piece on him. But also there were a lot of pieces from smaller newspapers across Iowa and other states. And we were able to kind of piece together his route. It wasn't really etched in stone, but we interviewed people along the way. Um, so I personally felt that there was a documentary component to telling his story. At least that's what it was at the outset. The qualifier, obviously, is that it wasn't a documentary. It was based on a true story. Um, but, um, you know, and as far as it being atypical for David, you know, I, I, I know David and um, got to know him even better uh, um, you know, in the couple summers prior to the straight story and then uh, working on it, um, David has a, is a real sweet guy and this is a sweet story. And I do feel that it, it, it I do, I did think and I told him, I said, Dave, you're going to mess with a lot of people with the straight story. It's kind of like your Sergeant Peppers where it's a big right turn, but great artists always challenge their audiences and, they avoid becoming a cliche of themselves. And I thought that it was, you know, um, kind of courageous for Dave, but not that courageous because I thought Elephant Man had the same sort of compassion, human feel. Uh, and I think that's the, the Elephant Man is as good a movie as you'll ever find. Hmm. Um, and uh, um, there was a tremendous amount of soul in the Elephant Man that I thought, I think you saw demonstrated by David in the straight story as well. Well, you know, uh, your co-writer, Mary Sweeney, has worked with David Lynch before, but this was a first for you. How did you yeah. get involved with the project? Well, uh, Rolf, I always feel like for one year I was called up to the bigs. <laughs> um, <laughs> I worked as a, a, a writer, producer, director um, in broadcast television in the network-owned stations in Chicago, uh, WLS and WBBM did a lot of live television programming and then um, develop, uh, left there and moved back to Madison, Wisconsin uh, to raise our family and uh, developed a, a handful of um, syndicated cable shows and started my own production company. And Mary and I um, became friends because uh, my last name is Roach and her last name is Sweeney. And so from an alphabetical standpoint, we were seated next to each other in Catholic grade school in Madison and became fast friends. Uh, and it was interesting, you know, we were friends through grade school and high school. Um, we just had similar interests. And as it turned out, we both went into related fields. I went into broadcast content and she went into, into film content. And um, in 1996 or seven, you know, she gave me a heads up saying, hey, you know, I'm, I've been editing and I'd really like a chance to do some writing. Would you like to work on a script with me? And I had kind of put my uh, toe in the water on screenwriting prior and had written some documentaries and did a lot of writing every day in broadcast. And I write a local column. So I fashioned myself as a writer first. And so I, you know, I jumped at the chance um, with no notion that we were going to be writing for David. And then shortly thereafter, um, 
Mary faxed to me, uh, the I believe it was the Washington Post article about Alvin Strait and all, and she had a big question mark on it with a magic marker. Um, and it's indi indicative of when this piece was done that she faxed the article to me rather than sending me a link. Um, and uh, um, so we talked on the phone. I said, wow, this is really intriguing. And my brother, who is an audio guy in broadcast, had actually done been the audio man in an interview with Alvin Strait that um, Good Morning America or one of the network morning shows had done. And um, and my brother Jim said, he's a really interesting guy. Um, uh, and, you know, and he thinks the media is a bunch of BS. <laughs> so I thought that was intriguing. So I jumped in my car and traveled from Madison to the end point of his trip in Blue River slash Mount Zion, Wisconsin. And just driving along those roads was real evocative. Um, I'm a son of the Midwest. Um, I am proud of being a Midwesterner. Um, and the, the country that Alvin traveled through on his riding lawnmower with a little trailer behind um, is beautiful to my eye. And I know it uh, was to Mary's as well. Um, so, um, you know, um, that's kind of how I jumped in on it with Mary. And then in short work, um, you know, shortly thereafter, Mary tried to get the rights from Alvin and the Strait family. And he had already sold the rights to Ray Stark, a big Hollywood producer, Ray Stark, and Larry Gelbart, who produced MASH. So um, it, you know, if nothing else, it confirmed our notion that it was a story. And to Mary's credit, who was the producer of the film as well, um, she checked with Alvin Strait um, a year after we tried to get the rights. And um, these two big Hollywood producers had let the rights lapse and Mary jumped in. And so we were able to proceed with, um, you know, exploring the screenplay. And it, you know, it entailed getting, you know, leaving Madison, Wisconsin and driving all the way to Lorenz, Iowa, which is in uh, kind of the southwest corner of Iowa. And Iowa is a really pretty big state and pretty flat once you leave the, leave the river uh, country. And by that time, Elvin had passed. So we interviewed his family members and then simply got on the road ourselves and um, tried to track his travel and interviewed people along the way who had encountered Elvin. I'm curious to know how you put the story together in the course of of that research trip, because a trip like this tends to be a little picaresque. You know, it's just this happens and then this happens, and it was based on a real story. Yet, Alvin Strait's uh, journey comes together through these very vivid encounters with various people he meets, including a hitchhiker and some bicyclists and mm -hmm. a pair of a pair of twins who who overcharge <laughs> him for fixing the the mower right and so i'm curious to know how you know of this of this grand scope of who you could have included over this 6 week real story journey you chose these sub stories and these encounters for the script right so um you know ralph i'm not um, you know, some of the scenes and characters in the film were based upon people we talked to, but it is based on a, a, a true story, but it is, you know, um, more of our interpretation of what that story was. And so there was absolutely some creative license taken with Richard's uh, 
uh, with the story that Richard Farnsworth starred in and Alvin's story. Um, and, you know, we've never, uh, you know, I don't, you know, personally want to just say, well, this was kind of came from the writers and this came from what we discovered on the road because it's such a rich mix that it'd be difficult and unfair to try to pick what was really rooted in something. But I will tell you this, when we sat down to write the screenplay, a lot of it was, you know, rooted in what we experienced along the road. Um, and, um, um, but we found ourselves because we didn't have Alvin to talk to at this time. He had passed. I would argue the single biggest question that I had and that Mary and I discussed was why, why did he take this trip? Hmm. And in, um, you know, that, that was the most interesting puzzle to unlock for us. And, um, you know, I think, I hope that the screenplay we wrote opened the door to the notion that it was a guy who didn't want to give up living his life the way he wanted to live it, that there was a statement about independence, but there was also a statement about penance and redemption. Hmm. Um, uh, that, that there was, and, and in fact, there were some things that had to be ironed out between Alvin and his brother. It is, in a sense, sort of a pilgrimage story because— Oh, I agree. This is a guy who who had a chance, at least in the movie version, had a chance to, to hitch a ride after a certain point and get there faster. But it really felt like the, the journey itself was part of the penance process. I, I really do think that. Um, um, so both Mary and I were educated in Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think— um, not consciously, but subliminally, some of the the parables that we learned in our youth came out in our interpretation of Alvin's trip. Um, and um, I, I do think that there were, obviously, Alvin could have asked for a ride. He could have taken a bus, although there was no real easy way to get there. There were no bus. He would have had to transfer three times. There were no trains. There were, there was no direct air flights. Um, and, and also, Ralph, this was, you know, uh, Alvin was a real independent guy. Um, you know, he was part of the rural poor. His family never owned a home. All his children were born in the, in the family, in a family bed, hmm. not in hospitals. He had, I think, six or seven kids. Um, I personally um, felt um, in, in, intervie- in speaking to him on the phone and then hearing about him from his children that... Um, Alvin was part of the vestigial remains of the Dust Bowl population. You know, they're called Okies in the day. Um, And I worked on dairy farms growing up, and there were um, folks um, who worked the land in a seasonal basis, and they would come through town and help, you know, harvest whatever fruit or crops were to be harvested. And, um, you know, we lose sight of the rural poor in America um, and, uh, but I think Alvin was part of that population and with roots very deep in that population. I mean, the fact that his family never owned a home is something, you know, that that's sharecropper material, frankly. Um, um, but he also, um, you know, knowing folks of, from that culture, they're very, um, self-sufficient. They certainly know how to fix a lawnmower, <laughs> 
and uh, you know make a make a trailer for it and hook it onto the lawnmower and ride across the state, uh, uh, which is what Alvin did. I just think he was part of a very self sufficient generation, a part of a generation that grew up in rural, not urban America, and it. I think it kind of seemed sort of natural to Alvin. It wasn't a big deal to Alvin, I don't think. It was a big deal to a lot of other people. But to Alvin, it was just, well, that's the way I wanted to go. It's interesting how uh, these days in cinema, we talk a lot about representation and whose stories are being told. But the the rural poor is a demographic that stories are not often told in a sympathetic way. And I tell you what, um, one of the biggest fans of this movie is Alice Potts, my mother, a Kansas farm girl. (laughs) Sure. uh, Who watched it and just... In in a way that you know, like the movie is is it sort of gives a beautiful and romanticized vision of the rural Midwest, but it's not sentimental, and so uh, she could identify. I think she's identified with this movie um, in ways that that she didn't identify with other movies. She saw her, her her rural Kansas upbringing in this movie in a way that no other movie has really done so. Well, Ralph, you know, both Mary and I felt we knew Alvin because our fathers were of that generation. And we referred to our fathers a lot. Um, and there's a term in Wisconsin in rural America, Midwest America. I called Elvin a tough old cob. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if you've heard that term, um, but that's a term my dad used to use. Um, you know, my dad sold seeds and worked as a gandy dancer on railroads and stuff, even though he grew up in Madison. But, you know, the era my dad grew up in was still much more rural than urban. Um, you know, in the 30s, uh, Depression 30s, which is when my both my mother and father grew up. And, you know, Madison is the capital of Wisconsin, but you cannot help but be affected by um, the farm culture of Wisconsin when you live in Wisconsin. Um, and I worked on dairy farms for three summers um, during high school to get in shape for high school football. Hmm. And so I baled hay and milked cows and, you know, got crap on my boots and, um, you know, learn to love that lifestyle um, and learn to love the beauty of the natural world that you grew, that you worked in every day um, from, from dawn till dusk. And so that was really um, informed my view of everything. And I do think, you know, first of all, bless your mom, but, you know, I do think there, the story of rural um, America uh, and rural white America isn't told very much anymore. You know, um, we are we are an urban society, and that part of our roots and our culture, even currently, is ignored by um, popular media and cinema. No question about it. Yeah, that it's just it's a very it's a bracing look at a, a part of the country that doesn't usually get bracing looks. Um, you know. I, <laughs> Recently, I was listening to a podcast about Field of Dreams, which is another Iowa story. Sure, but yep. it's a it's a very Dyersburg. different. Yeah, it's a different take on Iowa. You know, the, the straight story vision of Iowa is is a completely different one than the Field of Dreams vision, even though they're both positive visions, right? Um, another- yeah, I agree. Um, I do think that, um, you know, the uh, um, Field of Dreams was more an ode to baseball than rural America even though it did have that component. Um, But I think one of the things about the straight story that David did so well is he captured Alvin alone 
in the natural world of the Midwest incredibly well. He let the story breathe. He was, uh, you know, the, the, the story is unabashedly slow. Um, and I made the observation we were doing it. I said, you guys, this is like a Western because Alvin's tractor moved at the pace of a horse, hmm. you know, and, and at the pace of a life, of a lifestyle from a different time, you know, where, I mean, Alvin didn't have a phone, didn't have a television. He slept in the fields and that's how people traveled, you know, in the century preceding the 1900s. Yeah, it, it really, it really is maybe generationally specific in in who you have as Alvin. Um, I noticed that um, one David sort of frames this the, the whole film with views of the stars, and then two Alvin Strait is depicted as a guy who loves thunderstorms, and those two details, mm -hmm. as a Midwesterner myself. The idea that in the Midwest you don't have forests or mountains, but you have the stars, which are so beautiful and so vivid, and then you have these thunderstorms. Um, what decision went into to featuring stars and thunderstorms as a as a big part of of Alvin Strait's passions? Right. Well, first of all, anything that's represented in the film, you know, the script has something to do with it, but it's David's touch that makes it magical. <sighs> Uh, so I just want to preface pretty much anything I say about that. He's just a marvelous artist. Um, uh, and, you know, his roots are more rural than urban as well. You know, he grew up in Montana. His father worked for the U.S. Forestry Service. So David um, knew full well what the natural world of America was like. Uh, as far as the stars and um, the thunderstorms, both Mary and I are big fans of weather. <laughs> uh, and so, um, and when you drive slowly, you know, when we traveled Alvin's route, we would go out of our way to drive slowly through the landscapes he drove on, on the side of the road to get a sense of the pace of the world he lived in. And you can't help but be mindful of the weather. Um, and in the evening, you have two sources of entertainment. You have the campfire and you have the stars hmm. and nothing else. Maybe the sounds around you of, of the animals of the night in uh, cornfields or wooded areas along Alvin's route. Um, and uh, both Mary and I, um, you know, have, you know, enjoyed the Northwoods of Wisconsin where um, the stars are remarkable. <laughs> you can still see the Milky Way. There isn't... Um, light pollution or just, you know, pollutants in the air, we can still see the Milky Way. And so we both, um, you know, I know for, I, I, I can't, I won't speak for Mary, but I know for a fact that I uh, marvel at the stars more than a couple times every year when I'm up north. And um, we've lost touch with that other part of our landscape. And so we, you know, we were mindful of that when we wrote the screenplay. And I know, I'm, you know, when you're traveling in rural America, you can see the stars awfully well and far better than you can in urban America. Yeah, there's e there's even sort of a philosophical aspect to that. Um, I'm I'm curious to know a couple of moments of humor in the movie and how they seem also regionally specific. Um, one is there's a whole scene dedicated to the acquisition of a grabber. 
And uh-huh. two, and two, there's a couple of references to Wisconsin as a party state. Um, <laughs> th- those both yeah. feel very specifically observed. So how did those moments come about? Well, um, the grabber scene, um, you know, Alvin was infirm. And so the grabber was kind of put in there. I, I, I'm not sure if he had a grabber with him or not. He might have. Um, but we were familiar with that tool because of the, our older relatives. Um, and the hardware store, uh, I think we were both mindful of the fact that there are certain places in towns in rural America where the locals hang out. The taverns aren't open in the morning, you know. There's a diner sometimes, but sometimes the old guys hang out, hang around in either an, an auto shop or a hardware store. Hmm. Okay. And so we picked up a hardware store. And then um, the scene has Alvin, you know, looking for a grabber. And the only grabber remaining was the hardware store owner's grabber, mm-hmm. which he used to get items off the tops of the shelves. And so Alvin offered to buy it from him. And then the locals who, you know, had heard that, you know, Alvin was considering something a little strange, um, kind of challenged him, you know, what do you need a grabber for, El? Alvin. And he just said for grabbing, which is to me, typical Midwestern response Hmm. as in, well, what do you think I'm using it for? And, and also the sub subliminal message is none of your business, (laughs) right? (laughs) you know, and, and, you know, um, that's vintage kind of lines that both of our fathers might've said, both Mary and mine. I know it is for my dad. Yeah. You know, my dad was like, well, what do you think? <laughs> no, no lengthy, no lengthy explanation required. <laughs> uh, and, and again, as I said earlier, Mary and I found ourselves talking about our dads or thinking about our dads a lot as we did this uh, screenplay. And I think Mary had lost her father by that time. I had not lost my dad. I just lost my dad in the last year at the age of 88. Nice. But both of them, you know, had that. Midwestern um, way of speaking and reasoning. And they were men from a different generation, which is also contributes to it. Well, I'm wondering then if the, the whole idea of Wisconsin as a party state is a younger generation, oh. if that like comes <laughs> out of the 80s or the 90s, that somehow in, in Western Iowa, um, Wisconsin is where you go to party. Right. Okay. So there, I think the reasoning behind that, I know for me, I'm not so sure of Mary, but Madison is known as a party town. And it's, um, we've both been exposed to people who didn't go to Madison, but all came to Madison for a weekend to party. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of root of that. Um, also, the truth is, I think Wisconsin has more taverns per capita than any state in the United States. And it consumes a whole lot of alcohol and beer. We're always in the top five. Um, for alcohol consumption. So we're also mindful of those roots. I mean, and I have friends who come from the West Coast or whatever and sit down and have dinner or go to a tavern with people, and they're pretty gobsmacked by how much folks consume here, which is both um, a very social thing, but not always a good thing. Well, the area baseball team is called the Brewers for a reason, right? Uh, yeah, no, no, no question about it. Um, you know, Milwaukee's brew town and, um, you know, uh, it's just part of the culture. Gemütlichkeit is what the Germans call it, you know, having a beer and being gregarious. Nice. 
Nice. You, you mentioned you both drawing on your fathers for this movie, and age really does play in the story of Alvin Strait. And in fact, he has several conversations about about being older, uh, and he talks about how the worst part of being old is remembering when you're young. Right. Um, obviously, Alvin Strait was a lot older than you and Mary were when you wrote this. How did you approach the, 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 the topic of age as you put this story together? Well, uh, that's a great question. Um, and again, I don't want to... Um, I, I can speak for myself. You know, Mary and I both brought our own perspectives to the screenplay, and the screenplay is absolutely a melding of both of those. But I can tell you, for me, I was a history major at the University of Wisconsin. And at the time that we did the um, wrote the screenplay, I had a, a small television show that became kind of a little bit of a cult popular cult um, show on um, sports cable. And it was called the sports writers on TV. And it was three old sports writers and one young sports writer talking about the affairs of the day. And the old sports writers who were in their sixties and seventies at that time, they'd light up a cigar and they would, you know, talk about the affairs of the day in a totally utterly unscripted fashion to the point where they never acknowledged the camera. The camera would open on them talking and leave them for commercial breaks at the end of the show as they talked. They never really acknowledged the camera. And so the effect of that was eavesdropping on these older guys talking about the sporting news and much more um, the affairs of the day. And and um, I've just, all, my I personally have always been respectful and fascinated by what my elders had to say. Hmm. And, um, and so I brought that bias to the, um, to the screenwriting. And I really feel Mary has that perspective as well. Um, uh, you know, um, honoring your, you know, I mean, honestly, you know, the, the older generations don't get a lot of love in movies either, you know, contemporary cinema. And, um, but we both felt respect for our elders and what they had to offer and the experiences they had that we didn't have, like the Depression and like World War II. Um, is it, you know, he, there's a big confession. There's a, there's a discussion at a bar about World War II, about war mm-hmm. stories. Uh, how was that informed? Was Alvin Strait uh, a military veteran? Did you hear that uh, second or third hand, or was that um, given to a No, we heard, we heard that firsthand from his... Um, from his children and he was a certified sharpshooter, but the, um, but we, you know, we took creative license with the tale and also it was formed informed by the experience that David Lynch's father had in world war II, which he had shared with uh, Mary, Hmm. which was real poignant about him being a witness to his friends being killed by a being strafed and killed before his eyes. And so um, that was kind of an amalgam of several stories uh, that we had, um, but we didn't have a lot of detail of Alvin's. Um, we knew he was in the European theater and he was there for the full run of the war. Hmm. Um, and, you know, um, he, he, look, he was a guy from rural America and, um, you know, the guys who went into world war two, who were farm boys knew how to shoot and knew how to fix equipment. Interesting. Um, you know, Stephen Ambrose talks about that in his book, citizen soldier where um when the americans landed at normandy they came ashore pretty quickly 
and they didn't anticipate the problems they were going to have in the hedgerow company, uh, hedgerow country of France. And so their tanks would go over these hedgerows and they, the underbellies of the tanks would be exposed and the Germans would blow them up. Um, and Ambrose told a story about how a bunch of farm kids, you know, uh, jerry-rigged um, big scoops on the front of the tanks from um, torn up parts of Jeeps and stuff that had been exploded. And that's how they broke out of the hedgerow company country. It wasn't, you know, a bunch of generals figuring it out. It was a bunch of farm boys, you know, um, figuring it out themselves and then welding this stuff to the front of the American tanks. And that's the kind of ingenuity, you know, that Alvin had as well. Yeah, I'd heard that story, and it's interesting how this his generation, that World War II generation, is is almost gone now. Um, yes, it is, sadly. And and um, in a way, you can watch that movie differently now than when it came out in 1999, because um, there were much many more people of that generation happening at the time. You right, know, right. You know, um, Alvin is is depicted as a very plain spoken person, and some of the most memorable scenes, like the one with the hitchhiker, the pregnant hitchhiker that he mm-hmm. has an encounter with, um, they're memorable because the, the conversation is not really on the nose. Like he's he doesn't really set out to to improve her lot or to convince her to make the right decision, but right. somehow in a very indirect way, in a very plain spoken way, he tells a story. Um, it also happens when he talks to the twins. He tells a story about brotherhood that is sure. actually instructive. And so what was it like to to write those scenes and to think about this extraordinary man who didn't speak in a cliched way? Right. So that's a, that's a great question. And um, we did not get a chance to interview Alvin Strait. So when Mary and I sat down to write the first draft and we start out with the first scene, you know, we laid out 80 scenes, right? And then you go back and you start writing the first scene. And we ran smack dab into the issue of what did Alvin Strait sound like? And we knew in broad terms what men from rural Midwestern America sounded like. Um, But his experience was different than our father's experience. And so I have to really give Mary a tremendous amount of credit. She remembered um, uh, a researcher who had done a book during the Depression um, about the language of horse traders. And horse traders, um, you know, went from town to town buying and selling horses. And um, the book was a little bit about the vernacular that they used, but in, in, you know, describing that, you really described the language of that time. Uh, and so we found that and we went over it and that really opened the door for us because he couldn't sound like a cowboy, right? He wasn't in the 1800s. He was in the early 1900s. But there's precious little data about how Americans spoke at that time. You know, maybe movies, but that's Hollywood. And again, what did rural America sound like? So it, thanks to Mary, we use that book as a as a way to kind of open the door to what Alvin might sound like. And then for me personally, um, my dad played minor league baseball um, in the um, in the 50s. And if you know anything about baseball, you know that baseball players have a lot of time on their hands during the game in the bullpen traveling. And a lot of minor league ball players are country boys. And my dad's lingo and my dad's anecdotes and turn of a phrase were really informed by that experience. And I use some of his phrases now and people just 
laugh like hell. And they go, where'd you hear that? I said, I heard it from my dad. And I think he heard it in, you know, dugouts all around the Midwest playing, you know, um, D ball. <laughs> um, so I think it was an amalgam of those two. And, and I do think this, you have to have an ear for other dialects and other gen, uh, uh, generations of talking. Um, and Wisconsin, especially, we have a wonderful mishmash of nationalities and, you know, urban and rural. Uh, once again, you know, you can't live in Wisconsin without being affected by the farm culture. So I think that informed us as well. You know, uh, you didn't meet Alvin Strait, but um, were you on the I set? I talked to him on the phone once. That was it. Okay. Were you on the set yep. of the movie? Uh, yes, I was on the set, not for the all of the shooting, um, but I would say at different parts of the shooting along the way. I'm I'm just thinking that Richard Farnsworth, who plays Alvin Strait, is so convincing um, that it's hard for me to imagine the real Alvin Strait. Like I I I, I can't imagine. I think it would be it would be jarring for me as a fan of the movie to 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 hear a recording with the actual Alvin Strait. Uh, and and Richard Farnsworth, as I understand it, is a uh, is a California guy. Um, so are you are you aware of how he came into that role and how he really was able to embody that Midwestern way of being in the world? Well, yes. First of all, um, Alvin was a horseman. He was a stuntman in countless um, Hollywood movies before he ever spoke a line on camera. He was in Spartacus. He was in The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Um, Farnsworth. Uh, Farnsworth was, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so he wrangled the horses and he was a horseman in the movies. In fact, one, first of all, he, he's, he was a lovely man. And as David said, David Lynch said, no actor was meant to play a role more than, uh, Richard was to play Alvin Strait. Hmm. It was a perfect, uh, casting. And there were other actors considered, um, and they had to really convince Richard to, take the role because he had real uh, health issues. He had um, cancer. And so he really questioned his ability to play the role or to um, uh, physically be able to do it. Um, But then David informed (laughs) Alvin that, I mean, Richard, that Alvin walked with two canes and Richard said, well, I can do that. Um, and then they created a special seat for him in the lawnmower that helped um, help him with his hips and such. Um, but he, you know, there was speculation that Alvin already, uh, Richard already had a terminal diagnosis when he took the role for Alvin. I, I can't confirm that, but he did die shortly after, um, you know, within a year of the film being released, I believe. Um, took, took his own life because he was end stage with cancer. Um, but Alvin was, a was, a was, a, a horseman. He was a man of rural America and, um, played a lot of roles like that in Westerns throughout his career. Um, you know, worked with John Wayne, worked with John Ford, um, worked with, you know, he was like a stunt double for Jimmy Stewart and Humphrey Bogart and all these different actors. Um, so, playing Alvin, I don't think was a stretch for Richard at all. Um, it was a natural extension of the roles he had played in countless films. Yeah. It's, it's such a strong association. You, you've actually called Richard Alvin a couple times now. So I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> so sorry for that. Yeah. Um, that's fine. I know, think that it, just underscores how, how, uh, wedded to that role Richard is, you know? 
No, there's no question about it. And, you know, he got an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor mm. for that film um, for, for just the dynamic we're talking about. That if there ever was someone who fit the part he played, it was Richard as Alvin. I have a question about a couple of, of details of the movie that, like, reviewers nodded to. It's it's a very non-typical David Lynch movie, but it has a scene where uh, there, a distraught woman has hit a deer, uh, right. and she's very upset at, at having hit several deer over the past seven weeks. Is that a David Lynch scene, or is that something you and Mary came up with? No, that was in the the screenplay, and honestly, David shot the screenplay. I was amazed at how little... If anything was changed, they dropped a couple scenes, but honestly, David left the screenplay pretty much untouched. And that scene was based upon a story we stumbled across about a woman in Wisconsin who hit 14 deer in one year in her car. Wow. So we just thought that was so Midwestern that we wanted to include it. And and also, Ralph, we drove through Iowa. And if you know this, if you drive through rural America, you see a ton of dead deer especially in the fall during the rut where, you know, these bucks are, you know, mindlessly chasing does. And, you know, in the fall, I always say when we drive up to our cabin in northern Wisconsin, you could hopscotch your way to northern Wisconsin on deer carcasses on Highway 51 going north. There's just a lot of them. And, um, And also during deer hunting season, you know, every third car has a dead deer strapped to it. So that whole culture of deer and deer hitting cars is completely true to the Midwest. Yeah, I'm I'm talking to you from rural Kansas where I'm based when I'm not traveling. And yeah, I, right. I, sure. I literally saw three deer cross my property yesterday. Yeah, and and you know, um, uh, it was you know it, it was like oh my god, where do you get a dead deer carcass? Well, um, the 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 producers got a dead deer carcass by simply calling the state patrol and saying, hey, if you come across a buck in the next forty eight hours, we'll take it. Huh. Um, you know, but by the way, people hit deer with their cars in rural uh, Wisconsin and across America. And, you know, if you hit a deer with your car in Wisconsin, you get to keep it. And that's 200 pounds of really good protein. You know, um, I hit a deer with my car and went into a nearby tavern. Okay. True to our story. And I said, Hey, you guys, I just hit a deer with my car. Any, anyone has a truck that I can take it in to the you know local dnr or sheriff station and the guy every, like five guys jumped up and said sure if i get to keep it and i said yeah go right ahead um and so i mean i literally didn't know what to do but you have to tag a deer if you've hit it and you need to record it for the car insurance so there's a process but you know someone jumped up and said yeah i'll throw it in the back of my pickup truck can i keep it and i said sure and then all the old timers on our lake told me i was a fool to give away the deer um, but I didn't know how to dress it out. So well, there think, you go. I think one thing that some viewers, especially non-Midwestern viewers, might miss on first viewing the straight story is that it cuts to Alvin eating the deer that he that he has. Yes, with, right. With, without showing us, without showing him taking the deer off the road and dressing it, um, right. It cuts to him eating that that self same deer. So can I tell you that's the most natural thing in the world for a lot of people in. Uh, you know, rural Midwest America is to absolutely take that deer and dress it out and, you know, uh, enjoy it, eat it. Um, So I don't, I think that was completely believable. Although the notion of him, 
you know, he could have given away some of the deer or whatever might have happened, you know. But for him to get some of it, the hindquarters or the back straps or whatever he might have wanted, you know, that's not unbelievable. Yeah, so it's, it's funny that um, some reviewers uh, pinpointed that as, as David Lynchian weirdness when, in fact, it's actually pretty uh, standard issue Midwestern type stuff. Yeah, it is. And I don't know, Ralph, if you remember, but he eats the deer in a, a graveyard of cement deer statues. Yeah, yeah. And um, if you know, you know, you're in the Midwest, cement lawn art is a big deal, and deer are amongst the most popular uh, cement objects that people stick um, on their front lawns in rural America. So, um, and, and by the way, that scene came about because when we traveled that route, we saw all sorts of lawn ornament uh, companies with all sorts of stuff, you know, laid out there for people to buy and put in on their lawns, which was just, it was remarkable to us. So that's how that scene came about. And so it was in the script. I, I might add, David having the the deer being consumed by Alvin, surrounded by all deer, that was Dave's touch. Um, I don't know that if we had that in the screenplay, but we did have this notion of, you know, um, these lawn ornaments being part of it. Yeah, that's that's terrific and, and a memorable scene. Um, well, keeping in mind that you probably have to go uh, to lunch pretty soon and, and have 10 beers like a good Wisconsinite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Ralph, can I just, just say one thing and perhaps end as we started? Um, it was such an – first of all, this is um, – the anniversary this this next week, 20 years from when we debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. Hmm. My wife and I flew to France and walked up the red carpet with David and Spacek and Richard and his wife and Harry Dean Stanton, who was a tremendous Hollywood actor who just passed, as well as Angelo Bettelamenti and his wife. Angelo, the score of the film is remarkable. Hmm. And, um, you know, I'm very quick to say that I'm forever grateful to Mary for wanting to write a screenplay with me forever grateful to David for seeing something in our screenplay um, and including me in the posse at Khan. Um, and, and that's why I said, I felt like I was called up to the bigs for a year um, because it was for, to me, it was like calling being called up to the majors and having your film reviewed by every newspaper in the world. And um, to be a part of, we, we were nominated for an independent spirit award. So we were out in Hollywood for that. We were in, we were able to bring our kids to the Hollywood premiere. Uh, we were there for Academy Award weekend when Richard was up for best actor and just to be a part of the world that David and Mary lived to be a part of that for a year. Uh, and the echo of it throughout the rest of my life has been remarkable. And, you know, we still have like a 96 or 97 on Rotten Tomatoes and, you know, get, you know, four and five star reviews on Amazon and IMDb. And I jokingly tell my friends, you know, whenever I'm feeling depressed, I just go read the reviews on Amazon <laughs> of, of the straight story. And it um, uh, it makes me feel better. Well, <laughs> as, as I recall, uh, Roger Ebert, the most famous uh, uh, critic of the era, really, really gushed over the film. He did, and David and Roger didn't always see eye to eye on David's films. Um, but, you know, there's an aggregation of movie reviews at the end of the year. Uh, and we were in the top, I think we were the fourth top-rated film of 1999. You know, we were on the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Time Magazine, Movies of the Year. So that just, I mean, I was pinching myself through the whole experience, truthfully. And, you know, 
my my family, my brothers, my friends give me, you know, crap because I'll invariably mention something about the straight story experience when I've had three beers. <laughs> um, not to be a name dropping thing, but it was just such um, a wonderful experience for me and my wife and family. So after 20 years, um, does it does it feel any different? How do you how do you how is this a part of your life now? Uh, well, I always say the most uh, yeah, as someone who has made his living in the arts, Ralph, the thing that you want to do and the thing that they describe art about, you know, is that art is a human being ex wanting to express I was, that I existed. And, um, you know, like the cave art in France. And for me, the most, uh, there's two real rewarding things about it. To have written a David Lynch film, a film that has gotten critical acclaim that people seem to enjoy. Um, and, um, and the notion that something I wrote, lines I wrote that were spoken by Alvin, or th that I wrote along with Mary, that were spoken by Alvin Strait and um, the actress Sissy Spacek and all the people along the way, that people will watch that film long and study it, frankly, long after I'm dead and gone. Um, that's incredibly um, satisfying to me. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to the straight story and the work of John Roach, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.